Good evening. Those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here as our discipleship minister, overseeing uh, many of our discipleship ministries. If you have a Bible with you tonight, I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 15. We'll be, we'll be looking at Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21 through verse 28. A few years ago, when I was doing my uh, study, of uh, my master's degree at Southern Seminary, I was a pastoral intern uh, at a church there. And so I was young, I had very little ministry experience, and I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And so every story that I heard from a seasoned pastor was an opportunity to learn about how to be a faithful shepherd. And there was one story I heard uh, about a well-known pastor named Mark Dever. And so you know that name, I imagine. He's been to our church before. And so the story I heard was this. Uh, Mark Dever uh, was discipling a young man. Uh, he, was a, he was not a believer, not from a Christian home, but was meeting with him, reading the Bible, challenging his faith, his presuppositions, all these things, studying God's word over and over. And they would do this off and on, and they'd go for a long period of time with no belief found in the young man. And they did this for a number of years, continuing to read. And there were moments where things would kind of crystallize and become clear, but nothing ever stuck. And so one Sunday, everything happened. It all came together for this one young man in the gathering of the church and with Mark Dever preaching. And this young man thought, oh my goodness, I see with clear eyes who Jesus is. I see my sin. I'm turning from it. I'm trusting in him. And he thought, I have to go tell Mark. He's been meeting with me for years, pleading with me to do this and trying to show this to me from the scriptures. And so after the service, he goes to Mark Dever. He tells him with joy and with excitement and all the gusto you can imagine that he's come to believe in Jesus. And Mark Dever's response to him is to look at him and say, time will tell. And so I, as a young seminary guy, was like, what? Come, that's it? That's what I'm instructed in? And so I thought, I don't know. Is that the best that could be said? I'll leave that to you to judge if that's the best that could be said. But the reality is there's something about that response from a seasoned pastor that over the course of his time in ministry, he's learned something about conversion and about faith. What he's learned is that true faith is sticky. It's persevering. It's persistent and it's dogged. It doesn't give up easily. In other words, there's no fair weather Christians. And so, tonight, I want us to see that same thing in Matthew 15. Persistent, dogged faith. And this story that we're going to examine tonight will show us persistent, dogged faith in an unlikely person. So one thing we'll do a little different tonight is we're not going to read our entire passage at once. We're going to go through it verse by verse or section together. My hope here is that you're able to sense the rising tension of the story as we just consider it phrase by phrase. So let's consider our first point this evening, Jesus' retreat. Look with me in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre 
and Sidon. On the heels of his last great conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus retreats. If you were here on Sunday morning with us as we were walking through this Gospel of Matthew, you remember Jesus had quite the controversy where his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, these religious leaders, man, you offended them. And on the heels of that moment, Jesus retreats and withdraws to another district within Mesopotamia. But this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus do this. This is actually a word, withdraw, is used a number of times in the book of Matthew. And the time it's used always follows another moment of particular opposition. So we've seen Jesus withdraw at specific, regular times when opposition is rising. good example of this would be in Matthew 4.12. John is arrested and Jesus withdraws into Galilee. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees begin to plot his death and Jesus withdraws away from the Pharisees. In Matthew 14, John is beheaded and Jesus withdraws away. I don't think the message of what Jesus is doing here is that he's afraid or he's chicken. I do think in his humanity, there was certainly an awareness and an apprehension of danger. But instead, what it, this signifies is that Jesus knows the trajectory of his ministry. Jesus knows that with all that he was doing in his miraculous power, all that he was saying in his authoritative teaching, it was likely that people would have extreme reactions to him. Some would get so excited about the Messiah on the scene, there'd be a fever pitch of emotions, and they would crown him king in the moment. We actually have a record of something like that that happens in the Gospel of John. But Jesus doesn't want to be crowned king like that. The other extreme reaction would be to be so offended and angry at these miracles and these teachings that it's just an immediate move to death and that Jesus wouldn't have the years of ministry investing in his disciples and others in the crowds so that they would be prepared when he ascends to be with the Father to carry on this gospel proclamation after him. So Jesus trusts in his Father's wisdom and he sets the pace for his ministry. And he does this, at least one of the ways he does this, is through intentional withdrawals when conflict and opposition arises. I think it's just worth noting. There's no clear answer here that I'm prescribing to you, but I think it's worth noticing that Jesus conducts himself with wisdom. There are times when opposition arises and religious leaders come up and they've got a question and they're in his face, and he responds in a way that's offensive. And then there are other times when he says, I'm going to withdraw. The faithful life for Christians is not one of constant offending those that disagree with us, nor is it constant silence before those that are offended by our message. The path forward is one of wisdom being led by the Spirit. And it's just too simple to say that Christians must either be bombastic and pugnacious and fight culture wars and fight against those that hate the gospel all the time. And it's too, it's, it's too simple to say that we must be peacemakers in every situation and never say the truth that might offend. Jesus sets an example of being balanced 
in wisdom and led by the Spirit. Jesus retreats to this district of Tyre and Sidon. For us in the 21st century, this may not mean much to us. This region wasn't very far from Galilee, so it wasn't a significant uh, geographical change. But moving from, from Galilee to Tyre and Sidon was a significant cultural and religious move. Whereas Galilee was in Israel, Tyre and Sidon were in Phoenicia. These cities are mentioned in the Old Testament a number of times, always being brought up with condemnation in the prophetic ministry because they were these nations that would worship Baal and other false gods. And so in Jesus' day and age, this is the wild, wild west. And he's leaving the safety of clean Israel, going into a danger zone, going into a place with little to no thoughts of Yahweh and his covenant or ritual purity. So it's interesting that on the heels of Jesus' teaching, at the beginning of Matthew 15, rendering all foods clean and saying that impurity and uncleanliness is not from external things, he ventures into a place that everyone would say is unclean and impure. And yet this move into this region is significant for our story. Let's consider our second point, a parent's request. Verse 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It should come as no surprise to us that when Jesus ventures away from Israel, he comes face to face with a Gentile. And they're coming out, asking him to perform another miracle. But notice the way Matthew describes this woman, a Canaanite woman. For those of you that have some experience in the Bible, Canaan isn't a new word to you. But the word Canaan is only used, or Canaanite is only used three times in the New Testament. While this is a biblical word, it's not necessarily a New Testament word. This is much more of a word situated in the Old Testament. This land of Canaan was the name of the land promised to be given to Abraham. And so the Canaanites were all these inhabitants of the land. And that's why we find that language so much more in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's interesting that Matthew intentionally uses this phrase, this more archaic word, this more emotionally uh, inflaming word, perhaps, for Jews to describe this woman. You know, we shouldn't always read other gospels to try and get clues or answers into the gospel we're reading, Right? We shouldn't read Mark and try and pretend Mark and Matthew are always using the stories the exact same way or they're sharing the same details. But it's interesting that Mark 7, Mark calls this woman a Syrio-Phoenician woman. But here, she's a Canaanite woman. So it seems like Matthew wants to enliven us to go, whoa, 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 what kind of woman is she? She's a Canaanite? She's one of those inhabitants of, the, of our land? She's one of those people that were our enemies that raised up against us and fought us and prevented us from entering the land. She's one of those people that led our nation that was supposed to be this holy nation into idolatry. She's one of those women. This language would be startling. Maybe 
the maybe an equivalent, I don't know if I'd say it's the best equivalent, would be to those that grew up in a certain generation in America hearing the word commie. When you hear commie, you're like, oh, not those people. And there's connotations and there's emotional moving within you to what that meant in that day and age. And so here, this language of Canaanite signals that this is a dangerous, perplexing person coming to Jesus. But she comes with a request. Verse 22, she says, have mercy on me. Have mercy. She recognizes her desperate need. And she needs significant help. And she knows she cannot give it to herself. She has a daughter oppressed by a demon. Where can she go? What can she do? It's even interesting noting the language she uses of have mercy on me. God revealed himself as a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Perhaps she knows about this covenant Lord more than calling her a Canaanite woman would suggest that she does. She even sounds like saints in the Old Testament, like David, who wrote in so many Psalms saying the exact same thing. So she's adopting language of God's description of himself and David's description of God and pleading, God, have mercy on me as she comes to Jesus. We also should note her designation of Jesus in her request. First, she calls him Lord. In our entire passage, she'll call Jesus Lord three times. And this is the first time she does it. We should be honest with ourselves, though, that this designation of Lord is a little less clear, perhaps, than others. This word Lord is the same word that would be used to describe God. Yet it's also the same word that would be used to describe someone of higher status or class. So is there a ton of meaning there? Who knows? Even Jesus teaches us to have some ambiguity when somebody calls him Lord, remember? Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the next one, the next way she designates Christ, it stands out. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Oh, she certainly has some Old Testament knowledge in her background. We even have a little bit of a hint at how Matthew views this kind of phrase because of how he begins the gospel. Matthew 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So it's almost as if she's got the cheat codes or she's got like the, the answers to the test as she's coming to him. She knows. She's proclaiming something significant about Jesus that we haven't heard from Israelites yet. He's in the Wild West talking to a Canaanite woman, yet she seems to have clearer vision of who he is than anybody that he's met in Israel. Certainly more than the folks just before those religious leaders of his day. 
And so what is this language of son of David? Well, beginning in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And in that covenant, God promises to David that he will establish a dynasty that will rule over God's people, the nation of Israel. And God says, David, this dynasty will be marked by your lineage. It will be your son who always reigns on my throne. And so this image and this phrase of the son of David becomes a significant marker of hope and promise throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The son of David would be anointed like David, but not just with oil like David was. He'd be anointed with the Spirit. Isaiah 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So there's prophecy about this coming son of David being anointed with God's Spirit. Sounds like that moment when Jesus was baptized and the dove Spirit descends as a dove upon him, right? The Old Testament foreshadowing the ministry of Christ, showing that he is this promised and long sought after son of David. Jeremiah 23 says the son of David would reign on the throne. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And the son of David would be a shepherd over his people. Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. It is just worth seeing that this unlikely source knows her Old Testament so well. This Canaanite, this person outside the covenant people of God, knows what to look for. And she knows it when she sees it. And the Pharisees, who have been watching with a microscope and a magnifying glass, trying to watch any little step that he takes out of line, don't see it. And she comes with a request, Lord, have mercy. So what do we think is going to happen? What has been the pattern thus far of Jesus' ministry when people come with needs to him? Let's keep reading and find out. Our next point, a perplexing rejection. Read with me in verses 23 and 24. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what does Jesus do? Well, first, he flat out ignores her. He did not answer her a word. If we were reading this for the first time, perhaps some of you are, if we were reading this for the first time, seeing all that we've seen through the rest of Matthew, this would stand out as what is going on? This is a different looking Jesus than the one we've been familiar with in these first 15 chapters. 
We could even look back and see that he heals crowds of people brought to him. He has no problem healing unclean people. He's touching lepers. He's raising dead girls. He has no problem healing women. In Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then raises a dead girl. He doesn't seem to have a problem with Gentiles. In Matthew 8, earlier in verses 5 to 13, he heals a centurion servant. There's even a time when Jesus heals people that don't ask for it. So what is going on? What's with this perplexing silence? Even his own disciples seem to be bothered by it. Verse 23, they say they're begging him. But let's be clear, it seems like the disciples' motives aren't right here. Right? It seems like they're more prompted to beg because of their own annoyance, maybe. Right? She's crying out after us, kind of like, Jesus, can you, can you help us out and keep her down? She's really persistent. So what's going on? Before we consider the rest of this passage, I do want to, I want to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word. I want to f- tell you my answer. That's, that's, I, I had another word that was, reveal, reveal me, ah, oh, there's one, I can't remember it. I'll think of it later. Uh, all right. So Jesus is going to, or let, let me tell you what I think the right answer is. I think Jesus is not racist. He's not misogynistic. I think what he's after here is testing faith. I think he wants faith to be stretched and strained, and he wants to see persistence. He wants to see it brought forth and he wants to see it rise to the top. Because she could have asked out of desperation, everybody and anybody, and maybe someone could help. But is there something about her request to him that's based on complete need and complete confidence that you are the one that can do it? Because if it's a universal broad, I'm, gonna, I'm asking everybody. I'm asking the witch doctors. I'm asking the Phoenician gods. I'll even go try these Jewish leaders. Maybe they've got something for me. Then is it faith that's informed? Or is it just kind of a shot in the dark? And what Jesus wants to see is, is this faith real? And I'll forecast this too. That's what he's going to see. And so, Jesus says in verse 27, it's even worth noting, when he gives more of an extended answer, he's still not talking to the woman. She's certainly there with an earshot, But he's mainly addressing his disciples who have said to him, send her away, Jesus. Do what she's wanting. And Jesus' answer is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's pause on this phrase some, particularly because it can be confusing or perplexing what he's saying. And there's been some answers in church history that I think are pretty bad. Um, So some have suggested that Jesus only came for the Israelites. And that later on in church history, some people saw some good reason for us to be a little bit more inclusive and let some Gentiles in. So then they went back and edited Jesus's words of like the Great Commission or something like that. I think that's a terrible answer. 
I don't think, so if there's any of you that have heard that and you're going, well, I don't know, it looks like, why did he say that if that's not what he was thinking? Let's talk about it. Another really bad answer is that Jesus' ministry was aimed only at Israel. And that along the course of his ministry, when it just wasn't working, he said, all right, I'm going to turn my attention to Gentiles. I'm going to give up with these Jews. They're not listening. They don't want what I've got to offer. So let's see if anybody will take what I'm laying down. Once again, I don't think that's the answer. So let's, here's some, here, uh, this is points within a points for you. So here's the first point. Jesus' ministry was clearly aimed toward Jews. Let me try and prove this to you. Geographically, where did he spend all of his time? Israel. Who did he spend his time with? Jewish disciples. Who did he debate with? Jewish leaders. Where did his ministry begin and end? In Israel. It might even be helpful to think about it this way. If Jesus' aim in his ministry was to get the news out there broadly, he could have traveled to Corinth or Athens or Rome or Alexandria or these major cities along the Mediterranean. But clearly that wasn't his purpose. His ministry was intentionally aimed to Israel and to Jews. So now we should ask the question, why? If he wasn't about this broad mass communication, why so specific? Well, the answer is that the Jews were God's covenant people. Ever since the Abrahamic covenant, there was a unique role that Israel would play in redemptive history. God said this to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In that short phrase, we see that Israel will play a unique role where they are the ones that are the conduit of blessing to all the nations. There's a couple, I think, clear ways we see this. One, the nation of Israel is the heritage of Jesus, right? He's born into a Jewish family. The Jewish ethnic identity, the Israelite nation, is the family that is carrying the seed through history that would be born in Christ. And second, the Jews would be the first people to receive the gospel of the kingdom. They'd be the first people to hear the gospel, and they'd be the ones that would disseminate it broadly to the world. And we see this play out in Jesus' ministry to his disciples. He's calling Jewish disciples. It's the final thing that we need to see here is that this order of Jew first and then Gentile, or as Paul puts it, salvation to Jew first and also to the Gentile, it doesn't preclude Gentiles, but it's a logical ordering. And that's why we see even in the Gospel of Matthew, these little hints of Gentile inclusion over and over again, right? We see miracles performed toward Gentiles. We hear a teaching from Jesus in Matthew 8 where he says that people from the east and the west will sit at whose table? Abraham's table. He's saying all kinds of foreigners are going to be welcome to the table. And so if he's exclusive to Israel and he's not thinking about anyone else, then what does that teaching have to do? 
But it's because there's this logical order where the gospel will come to Israel and then Israel be this conduit of blessing as the church finds its origin amongst Israel, but then quickly expands through proclamation. And church, isn't it amazing that that's what we've seen happen? In a room this size, perhaps there are a number of us with Jewish ethnic descent. I I don't know. But I would guess that most of us, that's not the case. And by God's grace, his purpose of redemption from the beginning was to save men and women from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And Israel was this conduit of blessing where the church would originate, but then the church would be the outpost of the kingdom throughout the world. So we see this perplexing rejection, first of silence, then of this statement to his disciples of, I've come only for the nation of Israel first. Let's consider our final point this morning. A persistent response. How will she respond to rejection? Will faith be found? Let's read the rest of our passage, beginning in verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. As we said earlier, what Jesus is after is to see if faith emerges, to see where she will go and what she'll do if she doesn't get what she wants and is asking for immediately. And what we see is that she really, truly believes he's the one who can do this. So she's not going anywhere. Verse 25, she doesn't run away because of disappointment. She doesn't get angry because of the hurt. And she doesn't even just stay put. She draws closer. She came and knelt before him. This word that Matthew uses here can be translated a couple of ways. In our passage here, it's translated knelt. But if you go back to Matthew 14, verse 33, the same word there is translated worshipped. This word is describing the posture that one takes. And Matthew is describing her as taking a posture of kneeling in worship. She is not running. Instead, she ups the ante. She said, I've asked you for mercy. I'm not going anywhere. I am begging and worshiping you, and I'm in a posture of complete humility and dependence upon you. And her request doesn't change. Lord, help me. Our sister here has a persistent response, but so does our Lord. He isn't budging on his initial answer. Look with me. In verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
Jesus answers here with a short little parabolic saying, right? For taking his words, it seems like he means something like this. There are children and there are not children. And there's food that the parents need to give to their kids. And it's only right that the parents would prioritize giving bread to their kids and not to wild animals in the house. And implicit in there is, you're not one of these children. So as if that first rejection wasn't enough, Jesus does it here in a way that is perplexing to us still. He calls her a dog. In Jesus' day, this language of dog would have been perhaps offensive, difficult to hear. Dogs were not highly respected animals. They certainly weren't man's best friend at the time. They were often wild and regarded as dirty. And in biblical language, dogs are often used to signify someone who's an enemy or an evildoer. So what do we make of Jesus' statement here? Some have tried to explain this away and might lessen the offense in some ways. Uh, They have a variety of interesting options. Um, But I think the thing that's most important to remember, despite his use of these words, is that Jesus is using a parable to identify something. So he's intentionally using metaphorical, symbolic language. His aim is not to bring shame or to offend, but to elicit faith. And I think it's worth noting that in the end, this woman is not put down. She's lifted up, right? So as difficult as this word is, let's see how the story plays out and go, this woman is held up as an example to us. She may be called a dog, but she's shown to be a saint. She has dogged faith that's persistent even in the face of difficulty. And so Jesus in verse 26 gives his little parable and she responds right back in a parable. She's tracking right along with him. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's not assuming She's not presumptuous. She's never claimed to be of the covenant people, but she knows he's merciful. She knows she's on the outside, but she doesn't need a whole loaf. She just needs little crumbs. In other words, Lord, son of David, you are so powerful, a little teeny tiny bit is all that I need. You are enough with even little tiny crumbs for what I'm asking. I think it's even just worth noting in the gospel of Matthew, parables have always been revealing and concealing. So Jesus says over and over again when he's speaking in parables, hear and understand. And thus far, we have people who don't understand at all. And we have the disciples going, Jesus, can you explain what that meant? And this woman gets it. She's understanding the parables. She's got remarkable faith. She doesn't shy away at difficulty. She sees in this son of David, 
all she needs. She's got some level of penitence in her faith. She's asking for mercy. She sees her plight and her need. She's dependent. She can't do it herself, and she's coming to the Lord. Her faith's well informed. She seems to know exactly who he is from these prophecies in the Old Testament. She's humble, and she's persistent. She's a model of faith in every way for us. And how does Jesus respond? He's amazed. First, he uses this intimate, endearing title to her of, Oh, woman. This is not normally the way of address that people are using in this day and age, but this is a way that signifies some intimacy, some closeness. So it's worth noting, while there seems to be rejection, it's all for the purpose of highlighting persistent faith, and she is accepted. And this is the point of this passage, to highlight and magnify this mark of discipleship, faith. Those who hear and understand, this is who Jesus is calling to himself. So as I asked at the beginning, I don't know if it's right when someone comes and pronounces faith to you to say, time will tell. But it is worth seeing and all of us agreeing that saving faith is persistent and persevering. We're not saved due to the nature of our faith, right? We're not saved just because we have a strong faith or a super persevering faith that never wavers ever. But the general, over the course of time, picture of our faith should be returning and grasping and persevering and persisting. And we're saved because the object of our faith. This woman is saved not because she's stubborn, but because she is stubborn and in the right one. She's persistent in the son of David who has healing in his wings. And she's an example to us. In church tonight, we get an opportunity to partake in a means of grace that the Lord has given to us. A regular reminder to help us persist in faith. A meal, tangible, visible for us to see and remember. We remember that we too were in a hopeless place in need of God's mercy. We remember that we had to cry out for help. We remember that we were not his children. We were hungry dogs begging on the floor. And yet we remember that our Lord brought us to the table. So we get to come to the table 
and remember that we were brought to the table by his mercy alone. That's what our faith is in this evening. This one who made a way through his death to remove all that prevented us from drawing near. And so we come to that same table. Those who trust in Christ are not just allowed, they're beckoned and invited to come. And this reminder helps us have dogged, persistent faith. So we look back to see what he did. We look forward to see what he will do when he comes again. We look inward at our hearts and reflect on what we're holding on to instead of Christ. And we look around and outward and see one another and remind ourselves we were saved into this family of saints who were all hungry dogs begging on the floor, but invited to come up and sit at the table. So brothers and sisters, those who are trusting in Christ, we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve any mercy of God. Yet, may we have persistent faith in the one who extended that mercy to us. He will surely come back. Let's pray. Lord, we are people in need of reminder, and we are people in need of example and illustration. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of faith. God, may we be marked by persistent faith. Lord, use this time of being in your word, use this time of reflecting on what Christ has done to draw us back to give us greater, lasting faith. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for your son, and we thank you for one another and the work you've done to save all of us and bring us to the table. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.